Have you ever thought about how our world is being shaped? Where are we headed and what might we leave behind? You're listening to Nextcasts, presented by Swissnext San Francisco, where we examine the forces shaping our emergent future through conversations with scientists, entrepreneurs, artists, and designers. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to our special podcast series, Space, Science, and Switzerland. In this second episode, we explore the role of the UN in space and international space law. Hear from Simonetta Di Popo, the director of the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs, and Natalia Archinard, who leads the Swiss delegation to the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. This episode is hosted by Jale Yoldis, the Cultural and Public Diplomacy Officer at the Consulate General of Switzerland in San Francisco. Ms. Simonetta Di Pippo, you are the director of the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, short UNOOSA, which exists since 1958. So what are the goals of the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs? Well, indeed, the Office for Outer Space Affairs was created in 58 and started its operations in 59, more or less at the same time when the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space was created. At that time, you know, we were in 58 and only two main countries had the possibility really to access space, only time being Soviet Union and the United States of America. Then the office has been growing and growing, uh, also trying to follow up the quite quickly changing environment because the more space technologies were becoming mature in different fields, the more the commercial sector was blooming. And now we are quite in a very interesting moment because it's, I would say, a turnaround point. In currently, the, the main goal of the office, we have a lot of different activities, but the main goal is to bring the benefits of space to humankind, which means that we focus in particular on developing and emerging countries. We do capacity building, we do technical advisory missions, we support them with using space-based data and infrastructure, very often developed by others to benefit with services and applications in their own countries. And that's the first level for these developing and emerging countries to enter the space field and moving towards what I called a space-based society, which means a society where you can really improve the quality of life of your citizens of, in a given country, making use of space-based data and infrastructure. So in a, in a nutshell, this is what we do, which implies that we deal with every topic related to space, from space law and policy to safe, secure and sustainable outer space activities, from, I don't know, helping people with smart agriculture to tele-education, precise navigation. We help a lot when uh, there is a disaster ongoing and things like that. So it's so broad. And in particular, also, we have another side of the shop, in a way, where we support the Committee on the Peaceful Users of Outer Space, which is now also growing, at least in the last six years since I took up duty. We had an increase in number of members of the committee by 25%. So we moved from 76 to 95 and counting. Clearly COVID-19 stopped uh, a little bit. I mean, put us in a sort of a standby mode, at least in this in this respect this year, because I had a goal when I arrived that I wanted to arrive to 100 members by 2020. 
but you know, <laughs> we do a lot in terms of supporting the two subcommittees of the committee. One is dealing more with scientific and technical matters, and the other one, the legal matters. Right. That's more or less in a in a nutshell, I would say. Yeah, that that's a lot. I mean, that's really a lot. So um, when we when we say that we have 193 UN member states, you, you are counting other members, right? I mean, you have to be uh, showing interest in being member of uh, of your of program. Committee. Yeah, that because the committee as the father organization is the fourth committee of the General Assembly. So in reality, in New York, we have 193 member states, but devoted to space. So under the umbrella of the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Other Space is 95 for the time being. The committee is closed. So to accept another UN member state, uh, the other had to approve its inclusion. And as I said, we have been able to increase by 25% in the last few years. And this shows the growing interest in all, um, let's say, all over the world uh, about space and the importance of space for improving the quality of life. So it's really quite a good sign of the interest of member states all over the world. Right. So there's a space divide, you call it in your jargon, and you, you're trying to close that. And yeah. obviously with 193 UN member states, some of them are members or, or you know, are in space active and most of them yeah. are not. Um, can you maybe give us a, a more concrete example of how, you know, maybe maybe one example of one nation, yeah, for sure. example, do developed countries help the developing countries and how does that yeah. work, this, this collaboration? In reality, one of the things that we do the most is to support international cooperation. And you can have international cooperation in different manners. And one of the approach we follow is what we call the triangular approach, where we at the center, like a sort of a broker, we put together developed countries. I mean, we, we agree with, with developed countries, stakeholders, can be space agencies, can be governments, can be academia, research centers, private sector depending on the case. And uh, we help in this manner developing countries to access space. As I said, the first entry point is when you, you get data and you use infrastructures in space, which have de been developed by others, by developed countries or space faring nations as we call them. But the second step and the most important step is the fact that we help countries also in mastering hands-on experience, which means learn how to develop hardware, really to build hardware. We do that with the program, which is called Access to Space for All, is through a set of agreements that we have, as I said, with space agencies, with the, the private sector, with research centers, where we help developing countries to access space most of the time for the first time ever. Through this project, for example, we started in 2018 with the first satellite launched under the under the auspices of the UN was Kenya, the University of Nairobi, selected through a competition that we, I mean, it was an announcement of opportunity, and we, the Office for Outer Space Affairs, selected the winner. Then they developed the satellite, and in this case was Japan, the government of Japan, through their own space agency, which is supporting the project called KiboCube. So it's a subset of the Access to Space for All. And what they do, they support the selected country, the selected team, with launching, I mean, the satellite, bringing the satellite to the International Space Station, which is uh, this lab in orbit, 400 kilometers above our heads. And then they deploy the satellite and follow 
the first part of the operations. And all this is free of charge for the countries selected. So it was Kenya the first time. And then this year, in full lockdown, I have to, to say, we launched the second country, the second satellite uh, from Guatemala. So both Kenya and Guatemala was their first ever satellite. And we continue with that. We have experiments on ground in a couple of research centers where we can support the selected teams, other teams, to prepare their experiments because we have, for example, a drop tower, which is able to simulate in Germany, which is able to simulate 20 seconds of microgravity conditions. And the same we do in the Netherlands with the European Space Agency Centrifuge is another facility where a group of scientists and experts from developing countries can go there and learn how to deal with payloads in microgravity conditions. So since just a brief summary, I could talk 24 hours, but I'm not doing that. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, because this is quite uh, becoming quite a huge uh, project uh, with several opportunities of different kinds. Right. Very, very interesting. Obviously, being in space um, has lots of plus points for Earth, right? We are we are learning a lot and we are maybe hopefully um, developing some solutions we have on Earth. Um, but also uh, it has some issues like the space debris. Um, yeah. There's a serious issue on uh, our Earth is facing and, and we are facing and, you know, the, the quality of life we have is facing. There are some <laughs> projects trying to address this issue of space debris. One of them is a project <laughs> at the EPFL, Clean Space One. Yeah. If there would be a clash of debris and parts of the International Space Station would get damaged. And I, I, I was told that this is really easily easily it could happen because tiny yeah. pieces with that speed of, you know, uh, they are going uh, yeah. around Correct. the Earth <laughs> in space, it can actually cause uh, big damages or, you know, astronauts in space could get injured or we would feel the effects on Earth by losing internet, GPS, etc. Who would be responsible for this kind of accident? And is this something your department is also dealing with? This is probably one of the biggest, but one of the most important issues or challenge that we as the space community overall on a global scale have to deal with. Because it's true that under the umbrella of the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, the space debris mitigation guidelines were approved long time ago. Most of the countries in the, in the operators in orbit are following these guidelines. However, there are a lot of events which can happen, collision in orbits or things like that, which can create debris in any case. We also support the implementation of control re-entry of satellites, so to avoid the creation of additional debris, but still, the problem is there. And we have several issues or challenges, as I said, that we have to deal with, and this can only be done in a collective manner. So that's the reason why it's so important that this is discussed under the umbrella of the committee. In this respect, we did already quite an important step ahead last year, when the committee approved the so-called guidelines for the long-term sustainability of other space activities. Clearly, what we want to do is to preserve space for future generations and also for additional operators and everyone who wants to really use space for peaceful purposes. We really have to preserve the ability for everyone to launch without problems. And also, the more we go towards a commercial use of space, the more it's absolutely mandatory that debris are kept under control. Because if you are an operator, you have a business plan, you have a business model, and you need to be sure that, uh, I mean, you are looking for investors, 
And so at the very end, you need to be sure that you can keep your satellites in orbit to fulfill your operations until the very end of the lifetime that you have expected. The problem is that uh, this is really a collective effort that we have to put in place. So it's not only member states, it's not only space agencies, but it's also in the interest of the private sector that we have quite precise rules of the road to be followed. We have since several years, several decades, we have what we call the register of the object launched into outer space. So member states, they launch a satellite and they notify uh, us the fact that they've been launching this satellite. And so we put all the information on our website. So since the beginning of the space era, you can find most of the satellites, not all, but most of the satellites on our website. And the second part is that you need to be able to track this debris and also eventually to start putting in place some mitigation measures. And that's also why we want really to deal more and more with what we call the space traffic management regime. And these are topics which are quite, quite hot, I would say, in the agenda of the committee. And, uh, and it's what we call proactive multilateralism. The fact that we really need to stimulate discussion, and that's also our role at the office, in order to allow member states to find the common ground. And when I say member states, I also imply the, the private sector, which I have to say, my experience is that they really want to have clear rules of the road. Because for them, in order to develop their commercial activities, this is mandatory. That sounds promising because um, otherwise it sounds like, you know, we uh, we did what we did to Earth and now we, are, we already started, you know, um, yeah. yeah, not using space the way we should. Um, and then you have this wonderful project called Space for Women. I love that mm -hmm. title. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, the Space for Women project started just a few years ago. When discussing with member states under the umbrella of the committee, it became clear that there was a need to really address two main say, topics, which are, by the way, two of the main goals under the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the I mean, two of the 17 Sustainable de Development Goals, in particular, SDG number four, which is quality education, and SDG number five, which is gender empowerment. So this project, Space for Women, combines the two as the main goal of really creating a sort of a platform for women and in particular women from developing and emerging countries but the, the let's say now is applied to everyone who wants to to join is is more than welcome it's organized and uh, created for women but it can be applied to to anyone so it's uh, that's also the advantage because what we wanted to do is really to bring also young women and girls closer to STEM education. Because, you know, STEM education is really key for the future, for developing towards a sustainable future. And so in the end, also to be able to, as, as a country, to tackle the, the, the biggest challenges of humanity that humanity has to face. I mean, the, the climate crisis, the migration, the future of job, the new frontier technologies, big cities, and now also the COVID-19 pandemic, which is sometimes is also going, you know, in, in overlap with other uh, challenges, as we know well. Absolutely. So trying really to bring also mentors. We recently created, started the, the for the first time a network of mentors 
uh, we made this we made a selection all over the world so we have people from so many countries uh, part of this network and so just to develop a sort of a domino effect where the same message is spread around not only through us but also through this network and then one of the things that i uh, learned a long time ago is that in particular the the youngest so women and girls but in particular girls they really need to have a role model they need to see that there are other women who made it because sometimes the social environment they have around um, doesn't allow them to to feel comfortable in going ahead with STEM education or uh, really uh, following their own desire and spark a few years ago i was talking to to some people in and was lecturing and then a, a very young girl just few i mean probably was seven seven eight years old she came to me and said well i want to become like you well then i said okay are you sure <laughs> i was starting looking around me are you sure you want? <laughs> now jokes apart i felt at that point that i had also an additional responsibility because if i'm if i perceived as a role model by young girls well i have this additional responsibility really to try to bring back what i gained i mean you know learning and having the possibility to do this kind of job which is marvelous because you really learn every day and that's it's really what i wanted to do by the way this helps in giving them the these young girls the the feeling that if they want to do something they can and so space for women is also you know the expression of this is the fact that uh, it's really pushed by me being a female director the project manager is an austrian man and it's also important because i really against any kind of discrimination so we need all of us be all together on the same path and the path of equality or parity is something that is responsibility of every everyone uh, each and every one of us so it's working quite well clearly um, we have a website which can be visited and uh, and we are also organizing events speeches also with other un entities but also other organizations all over the world to spread around the world yes it can be done so now right now everything goes virtually if, if people are interested you know um yeah. persons can go to your website or to the um space for women website is it space for women correct. yeah and then correct. they can find out what what they can do yeah right and there and you said there are international ngos um in their countries probably working already with you and uh, offering some projects yeah and also uh, what we're trying to do is also to link this project with another one we have which is called space for youth Mm-hmm. uh and uh in in another angle is also the fact that in our capacity building activities we are trying to increase the number of female participants when i took up duty we had maximum 18% of female participants in our capacity building activities now we are around 35% but i want really to increase increase more and more this number just to more or less balance the the participation but sometimes you know from developing countries it's really difficult to find women who want to come and speak up and in really being comfortable in doing so so it's also you know combining the various projects this can help them in getting more uh, solid and secure in so being able to speak up and to be present and to contribute more and more right What was the percentage of female uh, students when you were studying? 
Um, well, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I started, okay, I did physics and then uh, and then I decided for astrophysics and space science. At that time, in the Italian system where I studied, there was no the difference between bachelor and, and master. It was, you know, at the very end of the four years activity, you were getting directly a master degree. Uh, which is even a little bit more than a master's degree, but okay. So after the first two years, I decided for astrophysics and space physics. And at the very beginning, we were 50%. But at the end, when I graduated, so the day I was defending my thesis uh, for, for, my, uh, for my master degree, out of 10, I was the only one. So which means that we started 50% and then was 10%. So it's wonderful to have um, you in this position because it's amazing, right? I mean, you're an expert on something completely different, but the fact that you're a woman brings a completely different uh, subject and view to the whole scenario. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And also in the office, um, I just checked for another reason today, and we have a distribution, I mean, between male and female, which is a little bit more in favor of women. So it's 53 versus 47. Uh, and, uh, and when I say balance, it's, uh, you know, it can always go in, in different percentages depending on the time of the year because, you know, you have also a little bit of turnaround and rotation of, of personnel. But I believe this is quite satisfactory in a way that more or less we are 50-50 with with bit of deviation which is normal and i have also to say that my goal is always to select the best the best individual the best candidate for a certain position because if you want to really build the best team you need to get the best uh, and and yeah naturally you arrive at more or less 50 percent which is also another good sign if i may yeah, absolutely. No, no, no positive discrimination, right? We want to absolutely choose the best. It's not about women or, or men. Yeah. But but there is something, of course, we have to do to just give them the chance to um, yeah, have, absolutely. The, have, absolutely. have the equal chances. So thank you for being our guest at Next Trends, uh, Simonetta Di Pippo, for our first episode of our podcast series, Space Science in Switzerland. We wish you all the best for the future of your work in Vienna and keeping the peaceful use of outer space going. That's one of the biggest goals of your organization. Is that correct? Yeah, correct, correct. Thank you so much for your time and for having me. It's always a pleasure. And now to our second interview, which will be introduced by our host, Jale Yoldes. Our guest today is Dr. Natalia Arshina. She holds the space portfolio at the Federal Department of Foreign Affairs of Switzerland. She has been leading the Swiss delegation to the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, short COPOS, for more than a decade and serves as the chair of the Scientific and Technical Subcommittee of COPOS for the period 2020-2021. Ms. Arshinar has been representing the Swiss government in multilateral negotiations on space security and sustainability-related initiatives, including the development of the guidelines on the long-term sustainability of outer space activities within COPOS, from 2011 to 2019, and the draft International Code of Conduct proposed by the European Union from 2012 to 2015. 
She is member of the Swiss delegations to the European Space Agency, ESA, including at ministerial level and to the United Nations General Assembly first and fourth committees. At national level, she is involved in the design and the implementation of the Swiss space policy. Dr. Arshinar was educated in mathematics at the University of Geneva and obtained her PhD from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, ETH Zurich, in 2000. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you, Jali. Thank you for having me here. This part of our podcast would like to know a little bit more about international space law and uh, the UN in space. When I heard that for the first time, I was like, oh, UN in space, that sounds so exciting. I was like going on and on with my ideas what that might be. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit more and bring me down on to earth <laughs> because <laughs> I was floating in space when I heard that term. So what is international space law? What does it cover and how is it managed? What role does the UN play in outer space? Yeah, thank you, Jali, for, for, this, for this nice introduction. And, and maybe as a start, I'd like to say that uh, I'm speaking here my own name and that my personal views uh, may not engage my, the government uh, of Switzerland. You brought up a lot of questions into one, so <laughs> we sort of uh, decouple a little bit. Uh, well, international space law, uh, the basic of it is five treaties which were developed by the UN Committee on the Peaceful Users of Outer Space, COPWAS, that you mentioned already, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so five treaties which cover, I mean, uh, several aspects of the utilization uh, of space and they cover a few fundamental principles like the peaceful use of space for peaceful purposes only, uh, the freedom of access to space, non-interference uh, between uh, with, with the space activities of other parties and the sharing of the benefits of those activities for all states. Those five treaties are referred to Uh, as the, the fundaments of international space law. But you do have other international instruments which are also relevant for space activities. And I'm thinking of, uh, well, international law in general, more specifically the UN Charter, for instance, or the international humanitarian law, which may be also relevant for uh, space activities. And uh, some more specific international Treaties like the Convention of the International Telecommunication Union or the radio regulations of ITU, the International Telecommunication Union, which regulate the use of frequencies, for instance, for the communication with satellites. So they are relevant for space missions. Very interesting. I was also asking what role does the UN play in outer space and, and is international space law accepted and verified by all countries on Earth? Mm -hmm. Well, yes. So back to maybe to the UN treaties, uh, there is the fun fundament of these five treaties, which is the so-called outer space treaty. The first one to be developed, to be uh, open for signature and to enter into force in 1967 already. And this one has been ratified by more than 100 countries. So I think it's 124 or something. I may be mistaken. Uh, so it has a large acceptance. And all of these five treaties, but... Uh, the last one, which is the Moon Agreement, not the last one in, in its, uh, sorry, um, well, I can't remember the date, sorry. But the, the Moon Agreement has been ratified only by 16 or 17 
so 1617 countries, uh, meaning it, uh, it's not the acceptance is not that broad. But otherwise, yes, there are many countries, parties to the outer space treaties and the other conventions, the Convention on Registration of Space Objects, the Convention on Liability in case of damage, and agreement on the um, astronauts also. Those are important important treaties to, to sign to sign up for. And yeah, I mean, those are obviously, yes, uh, they're, they're the basic of, of international space law. It's it's good when, when uh, I mean, the countries are encouraged by COPWAS uh, to ratify those treaties. But certainly one of the, of the, of the challenge is that those treaties were developed at, at those times, at the start of space activities, at a time when there were only governments uh, conducting space activities. And nowadays, obviously, the, the situation has changed quite a lot. So many private actors launching rockets, operating satellites, uh, planning missions to the moon, to Mars. So indeed, uh, it is important that uh, states uh, find a way or agree on how to interpret those treaties with respect to this new kind of activities. Mm -hmm. And this is one of a certain challenge to see uh, recent developments at national levels which provide for um, unilateral interpretation of some um, aspects of the treaties which are then, uh, you know, which may be integrated in national laws, uh, which may be the part of agreements among um, several states, without have been, having been discussed at a global level, multilateral level, and sometimes knowing that some states have different interpretation of the treaties on those aspects. Well, my view is that it's, it is important to have those discussions uh, on how to interpret the, the treaties with respect to new kind of space activities, to have those discussions at multilateral level. And the right body is COPUOS and uh, on this topic specifically, it's legal subcommittee. Very interesting. And what you were saying that the Moon Treaty was only signed or verified by 16 or 17 nations? Yes. What, what does it tell us? Why is that the case? Why, why just so little? Because it's quite specific. It's quite so, uh, somehow, I wouldn't say restrictive, but prescriptive on using the moon uh, in a sustainable manner and with a lot of respect for, uh, in agreement, you know, in coordination with the activities of other parties. You are binding yourself if you adhere to the moon agreement. And, and th this discussion has come up, has become very actual because of thanks to the plans to go back to the moon, thinking of the Artemis missions, Artemis program, the Artemis accords in this case, which plan, which provide for interpretation of, uh, of the, the, the treaties, which indeed step forward in, in a sense which is disputed at international level, meaning not all states do agree that the plans are compatible with uh, the Moon Agreement, but the Moon Agreement, or, or more largely uh, the, 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 the UN treaties, as we say, the Moon Agreement has not been ratified by all, so uh, it's not a breach in international uh, or in uh, a breach of this specific agreement in, in this case. For instance, last April, executive order uh, of President Trump, which states 
uh, that the United States of America would not recognize the Moon Agreement, for instance, nor would it recognize space as a global common. A strong statement uh, with respect to international law uh, in what concerns the use uh, of space. How did other nations or the UN um, react to this statement? Again, not the UN in itself, uh, or as itself, because I, I like really to, to think of the UN as composed by its member states. So uh, the UN uh, is not uh, dictating what states should do. The UN are a forum where the, the states agree on what they want to do, right? <laughs> well, so there was no reaction by the UN in itself, but there were reactions by, by some states suddenly, which expressed regrets, for instance, uh, to hear that uh, space was not considered as a global common by the United States, which also expressed some reservations to this president executive order or also to the to the Artemis Accords, which were published recently. So that might change now, right? I mean, we have most, we have not most likely, we will have a new president from January on. And that might be verified again or changed again, right? I mean, are you hoping for that? Oh, well, <laughs> again, and that's my very personal view. I'm not sure that will be that will uh, be uh, reverted so simply, so to say. I, I see this as a, a long-term continuous uh, development in the space uh, policy uh, of the U.S. So I think it will be confirmed. It, I believe the U.S. will stay on this line. That's my uh, personal interpretation. Yes. Thank you for sharing with us. What would you call the biggest challenges in regards of international space law? Certainly, uh, states are not taking the path of working on new legally binding instruments with respect to space activities. It's not the only field, by the way, where it is difficult to agree on new legally binding instruments. But happily enough, there are progress to in the development of non-legally binding instruments like guidelines, several types of instruments or which form what is called soft law. So non-legally binding instruments, but which give guidance to states as to how to behave. In that respect, UN COP was the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space achieved quite an important success last year in adopting a new a soft law instrument, in that case, was a set of 21 guidelines aiming at improving or reinforcing the sustainability of space activities. And that was the result of more than 10 years of efforts uh, within COPWAS to have 95 member states agreeing by consensus on each single line of those guidelines and agreeing on taking measures to conduct space activities in a sustainable manner. Again, when I say agreeing, am I being politically correct in saying a gentleman agreement? Because again, it's not a legally binding instrument. But it's suddenly the expression of a political will by COPOS member states to make all possible efforts towards conducting space activities in a sustainable manner with a view to maintain the orbital environment usable in the future for future generations, which is certainly an objective that I believe member states of COPOS do share. So that's the good news in, in the adoption of this instrument. And the good news is also that work should continue. 
to continue working on what can be done to enhance the sustainability of space activities. And work will also continue to help member states in the implementation of those agreed guidelines. And that's one very important element for all, for all states. I wanted to say for newcomers, but not only. It's really helping states to find ways to better abide with the guidelines and also to better work together to exchange information on the position or the orbits of space objects with a view, for instance, to avoid collisions. Because that we know that if there is a collision, and as there were in the past already, when two satellites collide, they break and produce a lot of the fragmented, they produce a lot of pieces of what is called space debris. And those pieces of space debris, they stay in orbit longer or, or less long, depending on the altitude, but they may occupy the orbits for quite a long time and create themselves a threat to other satellites. And there may be a chain of reaction, which is called actually the Kessler syndrome, which would, which is a scenario which would create a lot, a lot of debris, would create more debris by colliding with each other and then overpopulating orbits and making it difficult to launch satellites, to operate satellites in the future. So that's really a scenario that we would want to avoid on which all efforts have to be made. Right, exactly. I mean, the whole space debris issue is a big one, and I wanted to ask about that as well. But before I go there, you were talking about um, space sustainability. So when you say space sustainability, it's more about responsible use of outer space. And what role does Switzerland play in this uh, sustainable use of outer space? Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about it. And what exactly is sustainable use of outer space? different aspects of enhancing the sustainability of space activities. And suddenly I alluded already to a few aspects. So uh, international cooperation, uh, capacity building, research, knowing about the evolution of the space debris population, for instance, or knowing about the effect of space weather on the satellites, the electronic systems of space systems. All aspects of preserving space missions making them more resilient and more effective and efficient to preserve the resources. Because in the end, the orbits are limited resources. We, we may wish to think of space as endless, as infinite, as, and the orbits, we may think the orbits are also infinite, but they are not. They are not. They are getting crowded. The use of electromagnetic spectrum is also limited. The frequencies of the spectrum is coordinated by ITU, the International Telecommunication Union. So that's a very important role to avoid interferences. And that is because uh, it is not unlimited. So we need to agree on how the different frequencies are shared among the different space actors. Promoting the sustainable use of space is very at heart of uh, Switzerland. Switzerland is very much engaged in the intergovernmental discussions on, on this topic, specifically at COPOS, where those discussions take place at global level. And we've been very much involved in the elaboration of the 21 guidelines which were adopted by COPOS in 2019 and sub subsequently by the UN General Assembly. We are also very much involved in the continuation of this work within COPOS 
with the establishment of a new working group, as I was saying, to continue the work to promote the implementation of the adopted guidelines and to promote capacity building and to also address upcoming challenges with respect to, uh, to the sustainability of space activities. You, you mentioned um, space debris is indeed a, a big issue. Several nations are working on in Europe. There is ASA's project called um, Adrios um, and ETH startup Clean Space. In the case of a collision, let's say there is a big collision and uh, you know the satellites are affected by that. How do we know who to make responsible for this? I mean, or are we just concentrating on solving the issue altogether? Because, you know, that's what humans are good for. When there's a big issue really facing, we are facing, then suddenly we come all together and, and try to solve it. But otherwise, um, yeah, we are not so good in working together sometimes. So, but I mean, is it important in that case, who is responsible for this? Absolutely. I think it's a very good question, and, and which may... Hopefully not, but which may a scenario which may become actual, right? So there were only a few cases in the past. Thankfully, the states involved could agree to solve the case without going to a court. <laughs> they just agreed between themselves how to deal with the case. And hopefully it will continue in case of further accidents. It will continue this nice way. But in case there is an accident and we need or the states whose object, space object has been damaged, want to make a case at court, well, they could do so under the Convention on Liability for Damage on Space Objects. States could indeed go to the International Court of Justice and make a case that the objects, space objects were damaged. Indeed, there are some difficulties to then prove the fault of the other party. And that may be difficult to do. That's why also uh, until now there were no uh, situation which went to court. You would need proof that the other party did a fault. And first you would need to identify this other party because uh, there are a lot of objects in space, in orbits right now, for which it is difficult to identify whose state is responsible for it. Obviously, this has to do with the capacity of observing, of tracking space uh, objects in, in orbit, uh, space debris. The large one, I mean, there is a catalog which is well maintained by the US in particular and also by other actors, I would say, because now more and more in this case, in this area also, the private sector is getting active and developing, is developing capacities and providing commercial services. So that means operators of satellites cannot operate in an invisible manner anymore. I'm a bit diverging from your question, but I think it's an interesting point. I spoke about the long-term sustainability guidelines of COPWAS, which were adopted last year. But in uh, like more than a decade ago, there were guidelines adopted for the mitigation of space debris. Suddenly, the challenge is, is to convince, or maybe 
The space debris mitigation guidelines adopted by the UN are followed pretty much only by about 10% of the missions. And it was computed by ESA, the European Space Agency, that if there were rate of implementation of those guidelines were closer to 90, 90, 90%, we would have a controlled increase of the space debris population. What I wanted to say is that I believe that we, of the regulators, need to find a way to make it attractive for space operators to follow those guidelines, and especially the end-of-life guidelines for the satellites. And the capacity of observing what's happening in orbit by the governments, but also now by the private sector, it may also provide incentive for operators to behave in a more responsible manner. Right. I mean, if you bring something up and it's dying, then you bring it down, right? Or somehow. It's interesting that I can completely understand that whatever goes up, you know, certain um, certain places, like you said, it's trackable. The U.S. you were mentioning uh, knows exactly what's going up. I mean, there's so much debris that's not tracked completely, right? I mean, there is a lot which is tracked, but the question, and even even very small pieces, uh, but the, the question is whether you can predict with sufficient accuracy the probability of having an impact on others or on a satellite. It is said that a small piece of uh, debris uh, of one centimeter in diameter would have the energy of a hand grenade by a collision uh, if it was to to hit a satellite. So it would have uh, caused a, a lot of damage. Those small pieces of one size, they are, they are tracked actually. They are even catalogued. Right. Uh, but as I understand it, the difficulty is really to predict their trajectories um, and the probability of impacting an operational satellite. And also, if it's to impact a satellite which is not anymore maneuverable, then how are you going to do anything to, to avoid the collision? Those risks are, it's in states of emergency. You have to react very quickly. You have to coordinate with the other operators very quickly. And all this needs to be prepared in advance. And many of those questions are addressed at COPWAS level among member states to see how we can better coordinate, you know, exchange the contacts of the different satellite operators so that you would know whom to call in that case of emergency. But it's really a whole system to put in place because it's not only to have the name and the phone number, the email address of the other operator, you need to be able to identify. You need to agree on the probability of risk. Who is going to move? Because if you move the two satellites in the wrong direction and actually you may create a collision where actually they would not have been because everything is, is, is predicted with a certain level of uncertainty. So, so all this needs to be better discussed among specialists and agreed among uh, operators and among states on how to proceed to improve the safety of space operations, the safety of space traffic. I think in the US, you, you talk a lot about space traffic management. That's something which is also being addressed a little bit at global level. Different countries may understand this concept in a different manner. Uh, but in any case, I believe that it is a need so even to have this discussion at global level. It's a bit like highways. 
it's not everyone goes the way they want where there is a space. There are orbits which are very occupied by a lot of satellites, so like high highways uh, for cars. And can you imagine highways without rules? It sounds uh, what sounds very crazy, but I, I was happy to read that there are these projects and there are several nations now really interested in solving this problem and working there sustainably because they understood what it would mean when there would be a big collision. That's really good, good to hear. So let's go back to UN and space and the, you know, some countries are represented in space and some are not. There's a space divide. It's a term uh, I heard from uh, um the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs. What needs to happen in order to close this gap? Does it need to be closed is my other question. I mean, can, is that realistic to close that gap? Oh, I think it's it's a very good question because that's part of the objectives of this Committee on the Peaceful Users of Outer Space is to promote uh, international cooperation in space. That means that there are different uh, projects, different initiatives to help states, uh, new actors in space to participate to space missions, to build a satellite, giving them or helping or providing opportunities for launching the, the satellite uh, at a lower cost or at not cost at all. I'm thinking of the KiboCube program, for instance, which is offered by JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, in collaboration with the uh, UNUSA, the Office for Outer Space Affairs. They select a few projects every year and the result of those projects, the small CubeSats which are built by teams around the world are launched from the ISS, the International Space Station, from the Kibo module, the Japanese module on the ISS. So those kind of projects offer opportunities for all states to participate in space missions, to develop competences, to develop the technologies, to educate engineers, etc., to give, yeah, to develop, to help develop the competences and to have the first space missions. I also believe that what is very important is to help promote the use of space, space technologies, satellite data, for instance, because those are so much important for development, sustainable development on Earth, for implementing the goals of UN 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development in many areas like precision agriculture, like building resilient uh, cities, like managing water, uh, managing uh, the consequences of disasters, natural disasters, even for global health to help improve healthcare and provide care in remote areas, for instance. All so much is now relying on space technologies that we need to promote the use of those technologies and to help promote the use in all countries, in your country, in my country, in all countries around the world. I think there are many areas where efforts are made or can be made to improve uh, systematic use of, of, of such technologies, which are now fundamental to the, the development of societies. And that's also why it is so important that we preserve the use of these orbits, that we preserve the possibility for future generations to operate satellites, because we so much rely on what they, they bring us, they bring to Earth, to, to us on Earth, the benefits of satellites. I mean, that that's, that's also 
by sharing the benefit of space activities that we will help uh, bridge uh, or close the, the space divide. Yes, that makes completely sense, of course, um, to use space and satellites and all the projects on, in space for better, sustainable and healthier life on Earth, basically. Yeah. Not really to build a second life somewhere. Maybe that will come in the far future. But yeah, for now, I think we have this wonderful Earth to make life here easier. Every, every nation should have access to that. Yeah. Well, I would not put it in opposition, right? I think it's normal. It's the spirit of exploration of humankind to go explore and try to find other places to live. But I don't say plan B. I still believe we, we have to do our duty on our Mother Earth, on which we all live now. We have this duty to preserve it, uh, to preserve life on Earth for, for us, for present and for future generations. But yes, let's also, in parallel, I think it is quite natural and very fascinating to have the ambition to go and see how human, I'm not saying men, I'm saying human can uh, establish on um, other planets, having been identified by scientists as the most or the less <laughs> in hospital for, for humankind. So I think it's thrilled to see the developments in the next decades, I would say, to see how far humankind goes. Yes, yes, I'm very curious about humankind's developments in outer space. And yeah, it will be very exciting, I'm sure, um, what, what will come next there. So we are facing right now a big challenge on Earth, which is COVID-19. And I was wondering if it had or still has an effect on space projects as well. What challenges were you facing, especially in your work at the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space? I believe it's a terrible challenge that uh, we're all facing around the world. Um, it appears very uh, non-realistic to look at how the intergovernmental body you are active in is having trouble continue working because there are elements which are or aspects of this crisis which are much, much more terrible. In any case, what I, you brought up a lot of questions into one, so <laughs> we sort of uh, decouple a little bit. Uh, well, international space law, uh, the basic of it is intergovernmental work, uh, not only in the space area, there has been some difficulties because in the multilateral diplomacy, the personal contact is, is very important. So I believe this year for many of my colleagues, we have relied on personal contacts that we have built previously. So we know the people, it's fine, it's easy to talk to them even in a confidential, informal manner using all the digital means, although it will never replace having a cup of coffee at the back of the room where you can speak in full confidentiality. I think there are different aspects which made it difficult for many intergovernmental bodies to continue working this year. Obviously, the fact of not being able to meet in person and having to replace meetings by virtual so physical in-person meetings by virtual meetings or hybrid, maybe sometimes half-half. But 
the virtual means, using the virtual means for such um, political intergovernmental discussions is still considered as uh, sensitive for many countries. So as to what COP was concerns, the scientific and technical subcommittee, which is the first one to meet uh, during the Europe, was lucky enough to have a full and almost normal session last February. It was chaired by Switzerland, by the way. We had this luck. While the legal subcommittee, which followed or would have followed in April, and the full committee in June could not hold their sessions this year. So we're trying to find a compromise and a agreement with all member states. So again, even these kind of decisions have to be taken by consensus at COP was. So there was no consensus to, to hold uh, virtual meetings uh, in September. So in the end, the committee could only take decisions through written means. And the decision was of administrative nature just to give the committee the mandate to work next year. This decision was approved by the General Assembly of the UN this fall, and it's all good. The committee can meet, has the mandate, the official mandate to meet next year. So that is good. But in terms of addressing, uh, discussing uh, substantial political issues, there was uh, quite a cut this year. Uh, so that's why I very ho much hope that two subcommittees will be able to hold uh, their sessions next year. We, we are working on this already, trying to find agreement with all member states on how to organize the sessions next year, whether we agree that we can use virtual means or at least uh, hold the meetings in a hybrid manner, so half in the room and half through internet. But it's not agreed yet, so we're still discussing this uh, and it shows how difficult it is to make progress in the intergovernmental discussions. It's amazing. I mean, we are all very thankful to have technology and have internet. And I can see you right now. You are in Switzerland. I'm in San Francisco in the United States. Yes. But um, you're saying that it cannot replace the human contact, especially within the intergovernmental work. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. It's wonderful to hear that. I was wondering 50, 100 years ago when other pandemics happened, what did people do? I mean, maybe it was not spread like this because right now we are so connected and we are so all over the place and the world got so much smaller than it was before. But um, people, I think, were really isolated, probably, mm -hmm. going through these kind of challenges. Yeah, I think it's, it's certainly the digital means offered us a lot of possibility despite of having to stay at home or even, you know, working from home. At least we can stay connected. And also, I think it's, it will also, I hope, bring some positive evolution in the in the way we will work in the future when when things come back to normal. Hopefully, we will use more and more digital means to avoid traveling too much. <laughs> I'm also thinking, trying to think about the climate, and I think there is also an effort to be made in this respect. So, uh, hopefully, this crisis will help us to find the right balance between traveling, meeting people in person, and working in a remote manner. Right. Natalia Ashina, thank you so much for being our guest today or tonight there and, you know, this morning here. Uh, Dr. Natalia Ashina, who holds the space portfolio at the Federal Department of Foreign Affairs of Switzerland, was our guest today for Space Science in Switzerland. 
So thank you again for taking your time and telling us a lot about UN and space and international space law. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Jane. And that concludes our second episode. Stay tuned for our final podcast that will be available in the new year.